Hello and welcome to your review for the 20th of December, the last review of the year. I'm your host, Graham McKay, and I'm joined, as always, all the way from Ayrshire by Christian. How are you, Christian? I'm well, Graham. Yes, the last one of the year. I, I think we put a solid run together, just the two of us, um, after your early season shenanigans. Um, adventures. Yes. So, so yeah, it's, again... Just the two of us, we're producing, we're hosting, we're, we're guesting. It's just uh, the renaissance team, I'm just saying. We've been called by ourselves. So. We're six days to go, are you all sorted for Christmas? Is it is it stressful or have you got a, did you plan it out? I imagine you've got spreadsheets. No, I should no. have. Um, <laughs> the only thing that's stressing me out a little bit is there's, well, the one thing is this one of Max's presents haven't arrived yet. So it was coming a long way first, and we're like, last week we're like, okay, we're just going to buy it closer to the source, right? And I'm still not sure if it's going to be here in time. You know, um, we're not even going Royal Mail with this one. So it's it's not like a strike thing, supporter strikes, obviously. But so that's the only thing. But you kind of forget, does he remember that he put it on Santa's list? I don't know. But so I think that's. The I'll one. tell you this. Uh, yeah. I still bring this up to my mum uh, in primary school, so I must have been about eight, maybe. Agreed. I yeah. I asked for stickle bricks for okay. Santa, and I still remember not getting them on Christmas morning. Well, that makes me feel so much better, Graham. Thanks for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily he's only six, less impressionable age. So I mean, he's getting lots of nice stuff anyway, but. We'll see. Yeah, I got lots of like, nice stuff as well, but I never got the stickle bricks. And okay. you could say that it warped me in some way. So you're saying he might end up hosting podcasts in the 40s? Yeah. If, yeah. if that's the, that trajectory, that would be bad. Yeah. No, one, no one wants that. No. The only stress I've got, and this is also strike related, is that the border control was striking. I don't know if I mentioned that last week. So I don't know Which if we'll get into the country. Is, I mean... If you thought Brexit meant Brexit, it always doesn't. Because yeah. uh, I mean, so are you? Is so how's that going to affect you? Are they gonna, just going to close the, like stop the flights if they don't? There have will be them? some flights stopped. Yeah, um, it starts on the twenty fourth in Glasgow, and I fly on the twenty fourth to Glasgow, so that's awesome. Uh, but what one thing they're saying is it just might be a lot longer to get through border control. So no, that'll be fun. It's just Good like the start. one guy who's not <laughs> the union. Yeah. And he's just eyeballing people. He's like, it's not even scanning anymore. It's just like, oh, yeah, you look all right. You can come in. Just don't call him a scab. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So we're flying yeah. out. We're flying out from Edinburgh uh, a few days after Christmas. So I don't think Edinburgh's affected. I think Edinburgh's pretty. So I, know, I think it's. It's yeah. probably some joke about Edinburgh there. To be honest. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're not going to make it. Move swiftly on. Yeah. Yes. So a few small. Celtic-related things in the papers over the last few days for us to review. David Martindale has been talking yes. up Ange friend of the pod, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, been talking up Ange and been talking up uh, Celtic. Um, he, he's he's speaking basically about how Ange, it feels as if Ange changes Celtic's game a little bit for when he plays Livingston. Um he said, I think Ansha said he doesn't take any game any different from another, but I have found Celtic players with a wee bit more intensity. They're giving us a little bit more respect. And yeah. by giving us a little bit more respect, it's probably adding to their own game. They're putting a lot more detail into the game. What yeah. do you, do, is that just BS, do you think? 
No, I, I think it's uh, entirely possible that uh, a man who doesn't really change his game for Real Madrid will have a look at Livingston and go, I need to change things up here. I, I mean, it's just Martinelle, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I think it probably comes back to the fact that he, he put Anthony Ralston in for Yusuf Ranovic in the in the away game last season. And Neil Beaton came in from the cold, I think, as that's, well. That's right as well. So no, I think Ange has an element of I think he's he's pretty good at playing adapting his team at least to the opponents. Because especially now he he does have a squad where he can do that. And he's got that famous quote about, you know, the system doesn't change, but the players within the system might change and that might tweak things. Which is like the the Ralph New Ranovich thing is an obvious example. A bit on putting coming in, putting McGregor up in eight as well. But I don't think he's you know, I'm I'm gonna look at the Livingston game obviously a little bit tomorrow because we're doing a little bit on on the previews. I'm gonna look back on my notes on the last game, but top of mind, I don't think he changed much specifically mm. for that one. I mean they set up in a very specific style, but I also think Livingston at home and Livingston away. It's very different. Yeah. Now Livingston, you know, the Twitter Celtic was nil nil last season on home games. Um so they can't replicate that. But I, I think as we said, I think Livingston are you know, for that we like to take the make out of, of Martindale and he's he makes it easy sometimes <laughs> for himself. Mm-hmm. I I think they are the whole team around there is pretty much quite switched on mm-hmm. tactically and I, I I do think they evaluated the opponents, and I think they, you know, have a by only really usually paying for the game a week. They they do have that time to to, to prep that as well. I remember we went through the athletic article before the before the last game and looked at it afterwards in terms of how they wanted to set up and what they tried to do and so on. And I think you see a lot of the same today uh, today mm-hmm. um, on Wednesday. So, but yeah, I mean, Livingston at home um, it's. You know, maybe there's the one game that Ange looks at and goes, "Oh shit, oh shit." Yeah. Do you think is, I'm, is I'm this gonna the go, first I'm going to go full Lennon Ball here and just, just... <laughs> is this the first game against them at home we've played since the GG penalty miss? Is that is can that be right? No, I mean we've never what, made the top six. What so... we can do here is that you can start talking mm-hmm. while I'll, just I'll fill. quite. You know, <laughs> subtly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. does a few clicks on on Insta. Got some Insta news coming up actually, oh. uh, and then um, I just got an email today. And then I can kind of <laughs> have a look at all the games. I can scroll down. Uh, I have to do a couple of settings. I, I should have done this before because now I have to go into another thing. I have to click twenty one, twenty two season. I love how this... you told me I was to start talking, but you're oh, yeah. just slowly talking. <laughs> Yeah, well, anytime you want to start talking, <laughs> oh, I'll give you the I'll give you the next quote while we're doing this. So he, okay. he was speaking about uh, going to going to the Celtic Park and Ibrox and how people think that they they go and sit in a low block block, but it's not as simple as that. Everyone thinks it's easy sitting in a certain type of shape. He says, "I've gone Ibrox Parkhead and played wingers four three three and attacking central midfielders. You fall into a low block because they have that much possession. You only need to look back to the Real Madrid game. The first sixty minutes they had Madrid sitting in a in a nearly middle to low block. It shows how dominating they are in games of football." Okay, do we have Livingston yeah, news? I mean, he's, he's, I'm enjoying the term medium to low block. That's, that's, <laughs> that, 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 that is quite hipster of him. Um, it, I, I think there is a sense of that, that you, 
<laughs> by Celtic's dominance, you know, it's just, you have those, you've very often been forced to make those choices to go down. But it's, it's a lot, but there's, there's lots of different ways to do a lot of the medium block. And it's also a way of, of setting up your formation around that. So, it's, and it's not easy, but you can do it well and you can do it not so well. I do have Limits News. I think mm-hmm. you are actually correct. It's only Limits in the home game I can see. It's the 30th of October on 2021, yeah. which is. It was just over a year ago now. So, yeah, so obviously played away in March, won 3 1, and then obviously played away again in, in the October 3 0. So, yeah. Yeah, I right. think we would have had them again if they'd made the top six, but they just missed out. So, that was. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And final quote from Martin Dell. He has been quite complimentary about Ange. He says, I think Ange did an incredible job to win the league last year, but I think he's kicked on again this year. You, you judge managers on performances, but you also judge them on how on do they make players better. And I can look at Celtic hand and heart, and there's not a player in that building who's not improved. I think he's done a fantastic job with them. With that idea of making players that's better, nice. that's, that's yeah, nice. it's always what I look for in a manager because I yeah. think one one of my early criticisms of Neil Lennon was that he didn't improve players, and uh, especially second time around, I just don't think any player was went up the way. I mean, I guess you could say Edward started scoring more, and especially in the first, well, obviously the first of the two seasons. But I don't know. I just feel as if he never really got players to kick on as well. No, I think you're right. Um, I, th- I think what you saw when Lennon came in, there was an initial, I guess, reaction to not playing in, in Roger's system anymore because the first few months did go really, really well. But I think after, I mean, it's talking, I, I think you're talking about the League Cup final, really. And after like the European, Europa League games in the first season, it was just as really... At first, I think a slow, slow dec- decline in standards, and I think it shows. <laughs> people say, "Ange, coaches improve players," and that—that I, I believe that. You know, I think that's the thing that individually you can get better. But I also think we, we have a tendency to overlook. This sounds very basic. How a good system makes a player looks good. Right, so mm-hmm. if you, if you have someone like Ange that has a specifically drilled system, and he has the players who, who can, you know, fulfill the roles within that, they're going to look better. Yeah, I mean, you can look at Greg Taylor. I think if Greg Taylor was still playing a Neil Lennon system, where fullbacks are asked to do very very different things, he'd probably be a little bit better, better player by now. But Greg Taylor has has improved but he's also he's showing his contribution to the system and the team has grown so much but just because the system fits his strengths mm. and because the team as a whole is is working around him like if there's one this is painful on brand talking about Greg Teller and now Christopher Arier but Christopher Arier probably I think he had his best season in in, in Lennon's last season I think he was not that he didn't make mistake, but I think he's he, he went up a level. But I don't think that had anything to do with the Neil Lennon or the, or the team. You know, I think if you had a that trajectory in terms of Rogers has been there or another coach and knew what they were doing, you, you would have seen him become even better. But I, I think we kind of forget how much 
just playing in a good system mm. <laughs> works wonders for a player. I know you can use any example on that's called Tony Ralston, um, Taylor, as I've said, and so individually, yes, but also never forget how much the system means for like the, just the quality of a player and how 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 good they look. So, do you think based obviously you for for this? I think you did a lot of pre scouting of these players before we signed them, and uh, based on those players and the ones that were already at the club, do you think Greg Taylor is the most improved, or do you think there's a player that maybe, if, uh, for example, I'm thinking of like someone like Jota who was like maybe kind of on the periphery and then brought in, and Ange was just like so furthered his game. Do you, th- do you th- is it easy to compare, or is it difficult? Do you think? Yeah. It's a good question. It's always like, did the players ever did before Ange comes in? I think a lot of people guess, oh, we'll look at Tony Ralston. I think it's Greg Taylor overall. In terms of players that have gotten better, I, I think it's always been players who've had an inherent quality. And Jota is one, Hatate is another one, in terms of how he was really good, how much he's he's absolutely kicked on. Um, Other players like I think CCV obviously somebody who enjoys playing the system and he enjoys it. He's somebody who's bounced club to club, but he's not, you know, permanently there, and so on. So yeah, I think for me, it's Greg Taylor. It's 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 it's, it's Rio Hatate. Both has been Celtic's two best players this season, and last season as well. I think Kyogo, when he wasn't injured, you saw again he, you know, Cal McGregor, but other than Cal McGregor, probably. Celtic's best player last season. But I don't know how, you know, he, when Aaron looked at him, he said he, he was so good at Kobe as well. So I think with those kind of players, you're saying, you know, they, they've kind of more kept to a level and they get the benefit from playing in a really good system and under Ange, of course. But I think if you're talking about pure improvement, yeah, you can't get away from Greg Taylor. Is 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 David Turnbull the only player that Ange hasn't improved? Do you think? Do you think Ange has improved them in certain ways, or do you think? Would you well, think I, think, I, I think again, you can look at the system, like because the Neil Lennon kind of system is is one where David Turnbull was kind of, you know, I think his strengths came came out more, whereas in in this system, his strengths doesn't really fit. And there's probably, if you look at the return ball every day at practice, people say, okay, you know, he's doing this, he's moving the ball, whether, you know, he is improving. But because the system doesn't fit him in the same way for me, it's just a bad fit. And a lot of people see, oh, it was a bad fit. Oh, this player is declining. It's not very good. Sometimes it just doesn't fit the system. Mm. I think, not to mention Greg Taylor again, but again, like, who would have predicted the rise of Greg Taylor to that degree? Uh, and you wouldn't, but here comes along the perfect system that that crystallizes and enhances all his strengths. I think then you also see in Greg Taylor a player who obviously have that desire to learn, decide to get better, and who thrives on that, like on you know from a confidence, a leadership, and mentality point of view as well. That once those you know the system clicked into place, he can grow exponentially as as, as a human being, as, as a person, I guess. So, and I think the opposite is probably kind of true for David Turnbull. Mm. One player, well, actually, before we move on to Stephen Welsh, I wanted to just ask where you're talking there about David Turnbull with his valuation, because I think of David Turnbull, I think of Stuart Armstrong, 
And they're not similar players at all, but I remember being really surprised by the amount of money we got for for, for Stuart Armstrong. Um, do you think does do you think Celtic could get anywhere near that for someone like David Turnbull, based on like his age, his profile, the type of player he is? Do you think we could get what is it eight million for Armstrong? I think we got. Is that is that possible? Do you think? I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I, I just don't think so. I just think Stuart Armstrong is quote unquote a lot more of a modern footballer. He's he's a lot more. He has the strength that you need, especially on off the ball things. In terms of his pressing, his his intensity, just his his, his running, how much he can run, you know, the, the movement he has, and you know, when it comes to like who's got, and they both have really good shooting foots and, and kind of delicate, I guess, uh, foot in times. But if you look at, for example, if you put in Celtic terms in that number eight role. Stuart Armstrong just fulfills so much more. And I think he's, that's why a team like Southampton will look at him and go, actually, he fits really well with our style. And he's, mm-hmm. he's something we can, I think Ryan Christ is the same. You know, he's, he's got those qualities um, to a much larger degree than David Turnbull. David Turnbull is probably, you know, just as talent, skillful on the ball if he has good time and, and the sensitivity in his foot, but he doesn't have the other things that Ryan Christian Stuart Armstrong has. So yeah, you can get lucky, but I just, I think those kind of, what Ryan Christian Stuart Armstrong has, what David Turnbull do not have, counts for so much more right now in, in the stage we are in, the, in modern football and what is really emphasis, what, you know, what teams are looking for, especially like in the Premier League and some of the mm-hmm. other top leagues. Yeah. So, well, another player, well, not another player, a player that's been linked away with uh, from Celtic is Stephen Welsh and uh, news in the papers essentially saying that we are more likely to let him go now that Europe is not a, a consideration. He is apparently being tracked by clubs in England, Italy and France and there was a kind of wild rumour last night that Porto were after him, uh, which was, seemed really bizarre. You You spoke today in a group chat about how I th- you didn't see four million as being completely ridiculous for Stephen Welsh because of the fact that, despite the fact he doesn't suit our style of play, he's still got strengths that may be appeal- appealing to another club. Is it is four million about the price that you would be expecting for Stephen Welsh on based on his profile and the fact that he's had so many games, one meter ninety, good strong centre back? I mean, what would you expect? You make it sound like our group is some sort of like Twitter Spaces thing. Where we come on and pontificate. Um, when you say mama, really just like on my lunch break. And um, I, th- I think what's, so I, d- I don't know if I actually you can come out. So, so that was in the context of we're, we're trying to talk about Juranovic and what's, what's people's expectations of how much money Celtic could get for Juranovic and what's like your minimum amount you think you can label as a good deal. And, I think it was well. I think it was. I'm sure you won't mind me calling his name out, uh, Keith. Hi, Keith. Um, <laughs> Keith was saying, "Well, if if we can get four million for Welsh, he's like, well, what can we get for your Anish? But which is like, I, I think that's a because you may have been talking about six, seven million for for your in, in in terms of some rumors and so on. And you kind of go, well, surely this one one guy's, you know, in the World Cup semi final. You know, he's he plays an amazing game against Brazil in the World Cup quarterfinals. The other guy is fifth choice at Celtic. Surely there should be no, uh, there should be like a, a 
a lot of million of the million of pounds between them. But you do look at Stephen Walsh and I said, like, he's still on twenty two. He's got up almost fifty senior appearances for a big club. I think he's got a couple in the Champions League, Europa League. He's somebody who's when he gets a run of games is on the cusp of, of the Scottish national team. And again, it comes back to it's not a great fit for this what I probably need for a centre back at Celtic because it's so position heavy. But I think the thing with Stephen Welsh this is I I think he's been okay this season. You know, comparing it with, with more Jens, for example, who I think who went for that amount of money from, from Switzerland to, to to France just a season ago. And you go, I, I don't think there's much between them. And mm. I think somebody who's a young centre-back who's got certain qualities that maybe, say, a team that's more middle of the table, you know, towards the bottom, like, you know, Torino, uh, Udinese, who we can kind of be called, like you see players like Ferguson and Hickey going to the kind of teams to Serie A slightly further down the table and you go well I think kind of Stephen Welsh was fit into that racket in, in some sense and he could be a good buy so if you pick someone like that for 3-4 million I don't think that's an outrageous sum it's just it's not just about who's who's been playing the World Cup semi-final and, and who's fifth choice of Celtic it is you know how they fit into that system and you got somebody at 22 who could he could develop, and he's got a lot of playing time. Right? Like, always example is Jack Henry, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> he, he goes, he's, he's probably much worse rated than, than Stephen Welsh when he went mm. to Belgium. He has a great season, and then he kicks on. And so, um, I, and I he's in Serie A now. Yeah, I, I don't think four million pounds in a rate is some for for Stephen Welsh. So, Juranovic, there's a there's a lot of talk on Twitter. I'm seeing people saying start the bid at thirty million. Um, <laughs> I think the kind of, uh, and uh, from our group chat, and uh, I don't like talking about the group chat all the time because it's kind of. Yeah, you do. You mention a group chat every time. So you do like. Every, every chance I get. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the consensus from a lot of people was 14 million minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, he's 28, and he, you, you've kind of looked at, you kind of took a historical look at right backs being sold. Uh, later on in their 20s and there's not really that many over a certain amount of money. I mean, I think it's not, unless it's like a, a, a panic buy going to the Premiership, then there seems to be quite a ceiling when it comes to right-backs, especially ones in the late 20s. Talk us through that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, first of all, he's, he's, he's 27, but he'll be 28 when the next season starts. Mm-hmm. I know. So, um, But yeah, no, I think... Just purely being a, a right back, I think right back is probably one of those positions where you can, first of all, expect the least amount of money, you know, in, in one way. Um, you know, I, I think a left back is sometimes a really good ref, left back is more valued sometimes. But if you look at just because there's less left footers, basically, yeah, I, I think so. And but if you look at how many right backs has kind of gone. For, say over 15 million over the last few years, you know. So you had, you know, Castagna, uh, who was 24 when they went to Leicester for, for about 18 million. Um, Tomiyasu, had, you know, the Japanese right back, is was 22 when he went for about 60 million to, to Arsenal. Uh, you mentioned Kieran Trippier, 
he's 29 when he went for about 19 million to Spain, then he came back for 13 million, uh, 31 now to, to Newcastle. And you got others like Ricardo Pereira or your, you know, players who were like just on the cusp of 25, going for about 20 million, but they were going mostly to English Premiership, Premier League clubs. They were coming from big leagues, you know, from Spain, from Italy, um, and so on. So I, I think if you're going to get 50 million and upwards for what in the summer will be a 28 year old right back, I mean, there's not many that fits into that. And there's not many that, that do that having played 18 months in Celtic and then a year in Poland before that. Right. And I think obviously things like getting into Croatian national team, playing the Champions League, Croatia doing so well, that's all good things for Juranovic. One, well, one follows the other. One, clubs that want to be interested in him. And two, then that what that means for, uh, a, you know, a value in terms of the fees. But as I said before, like clubs are getting smarter and they do know that at, if you buy somebody who's in the summer going to be 28 and it's a right back and he's the speed and mobility mm. is, is a large part of his game. Right backs don't last at that level for that long. So you, you do come with a kind of a right back tax, you know, the Scottish premiership is probably a tax you can add on to that as well. So, I think if you get 15 million for your average, that's a really good deal for me. It, considering you, you bought him for a one and a half million 18 months ago. So, you know, so, so I'm saying, I, and I also don't think 10 million is, is a terrible deal for your average because the other thing that comes in here as well is Celtics had to learn their lesson in terms of do they try and squeeze two, three, four million out? of a buying club for a player that's kind of feel, okay, I need to, I need to kind of move on now, you know, and no matter how long the contract is or so what, you have to then, because, because doesn't have a huge window here. Like he's the highest age he is, he's just coming off a world cup. This is probably one of his last chances to make quote, like a, a move to a really big league and, and a, good club in those leagues so he will want to go and but outside the Premier League specifically even two three years ago I think there's less money to spend on right backs especially when you know somebody's going to be 28 so okay see if you get a Leicester or like a West Ham really interested and they control 50 million at it for a right back that might not be even be the starter yeah you can get lucky and you can get those clubs interested and say okay let's move but ah, I, I honestly don't think 10 million would be a, you know, people maybe turn their nose up on that, but I, you know, it, historically how much you're going for before and those kind of other factors involved. And if it lets you get in 12 million now and then invest that straight away in, in another player, maybe in another position that, that strengthens the, you know, the team, it's some of those decisions you just have to make sometimes. So I think, I, I, I think, any, I, I think, I'd be astonished if you get more than 50 million. I'd be delighted, but I think that you need to get really, really lucky now. I think the comparison with Castagna is quite is quite interesting because you're you're talking about okay someone that was uh, international for Belgium, so mm-hmm. quite a similar level in nation to Croatia. Yeah. 
about two However, years younger. Three years younger and coming from Serie A. And they were only 18 million. So yep. I, I think, yeah, I, I think we're going to have to be a bit more realistic with what we expect for, in particular, Juranovic. And it's probably because we've seen the, the fees for players like Ayer, Edward, K, KT. But the caveat to that is you've got a left-footed, uh, a left-back, younger, Ayer, a ball-playing centre-back, which is what everyone's after as well, and younger. And Edward was... Um, uh, Basically, an interesting forward and younger as well. So, yeah, it's 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 apples and oranges in a way. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the same discussion you have with Gigi as well. Like people have been turning their nose up at five million for Gigi, but honestly, see if you got fifteen million for two twenty-eight year olds you you bought eighteen months ago, that cost you what four or five million together. Mm. I mean, that's that's just really clever business, and it's. And in one way, it's only clever business if you then go and reinvest, reinvest mm-hmm. it properly. But that's the leap of faith you just have to, you have to, you you hope the club is able to do now. Right. It's, it's that agility that uh, I'm just spoken about. I think get them in five million, get them out fifteen million, get eighteen months out of them. You know what I mean? That's it's it's what we're going to have to do. Wheel and deal, Harry yes. Redknapp style. Yes. So my final kind of um, story from this is related to Scottish football, not so much Celtic. But I asked you about this uh, Keanu Bacchus, um, St. Murn player, and he has been at the World Cup with Australia. He now seems to have a whole host of clubs after him, including including AK Athens and Ghent. He's a 24-year-old midfielder. This seems on paper the exactly the type of player that we should be looking at, at least at least running our eye over because young knows the league now. <laughs> we don't need to worry about that. Knows knows the city. I mean Paisley is adjacent to Glasgow, but he knows the city. And he knows the manager. Well, I don't know if he knows him, but they're Australian. I do they're Australian. Australian. Yeah, you know each other. So do what do you know about Bacchus and what do you think about him his suitability for Celtic? No, I, to be honest, I, I, I need to look at it more in terms of you know, just both running and stats and, and everything like that. But it's, it, again, I, I don't think he's it's, it's getting it's too old. But you have been talking about someone who's, you know, the, the other kind of um, player that we talked about last, last week, Aysa Lodi, uh, Tunisia, who's He's kind of you know plays in Fairmars, you know, also you know midfielder, uh, played in the in the World Cup, about the same age as as Keener, uh here as well, and you, and you kind of go, no, I'm not saying because he plays for Samarin, you, you shouldn't consider that because you need to consider that as well, but. Uh, it seems kind of mean too convenient for me in terms of this is a guy who's you know just been playing the A League the whole time. He's come to you know to St. Mirren. So before I kind of dive into like actually watching him properly, and you know I, I think I remember from the game uh, earlier in the season, you know St. Mirren put a good performance. I, I thought that was it was all right, but. Um, I think I actually double check his play. I think he played. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I remember his name from, from the notes there, but I have to double check that. But I don't know, Graham. I, to me, it just seems a bit, you know, I don't get a good feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm just going on the vibes here. 
I, I'm not going on the stats and ending it, but no, uh, not for me just now. I mean, there's uh, an, another Australian player that used to play for St. Man called Aaron Moy, and that has worked out swimmingly. So. That's, that's true. That is true. I mean, I mean, there's so yeah, we can have a look at if, if, if it intensifies in terms of rumors and stuff. We'll have a good look around in, in terms of next time, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So, Aberdeen, can you yes. keep your knuckles clean? That's how the song used to go. Huh, um, I did not know that. <laughs> we, we did the reaction. I did the reaction on uh, Saturday. That was fun. Um, <laughs> we we spoke about kind of. I think there was some disappointment on the call about how we played. I, I actually thought we played well, and it's just it was the, the putting the ball in the back of the net that we were having the problem with, especially with a, a team that were set up in such a special way. Uh, you you put on Twitter that they tried to copy St. Mun uh, when St. Mun played against us. That could have been admitted to it beforehand. Talk us through this Aberdeen game. What did Aberdeen try to do and how did Celtic combat it? Yes, yeah, so we spoke on the preview as well that having watched them against Rangers, against Hibs, I think what you saw in those two games, even though it was the same formation, pretty much three centre backs, uh, you know, roughly wing backs, three midfielders, two strikers, same formation. In terms of the numbers against Rangers and Hibs against Celtic, but I don't think you can play in two more different ways in, in, in comparable to them. Against Rangers, as you said, Aberdeen were pressing so high. Um, behind that, again, the centre-backs were coming out so wide and they were pushing their wing-backs up, so there was almost like nominal wingers, and there was so much space within that team. But what Goodwin said, I saw this on Friday night. I actually saw an interview with him on Sky saying, Oh, we've been, you know, we've been watching the St. Marion game. And, you know, there's just a few things we're going to take from that. Not only did he take that, but he went, you know, pure St. Marion in terms of essentially what St. Marion did. And we talked about this on the podcast, but they had a very, clear plan so they, they had the three center backs that would stay in the middle stay narrow they had the two wing backs that would fall down on the wingers Celtics wing so essentially have a, a back five and then they had a midfield tree that would pretty much stay in a line stay really close to each other and basically you know almost go one on one in terms of Celtics midfield tree but that but the space between the midfield three and then the defensive five. So it's quite uh, talking about Samarin. Yeah, they were close, but they weren't like on top of each other. And against Samarin, also you had the two strikers on top, who would be kind of the first line of defense, and that would allow you. And the point of all this is obviously you fall down, you could kind of collapse or and sit in a block. But that the, the key here for me is that midfield tree. If they are able to do the work. You know, horizontally back and forth, stay close together. You know, that should kind of crowd out the sides if Celtic goes like try to do some nice rotations on the sides. Because you got the wing back, you got the right center back, for example, you got, and then you got two of the central midfielders right over to crowd that out. If he goes into the middle, so then you got the three center backs in one line and then the three central midfielders because they move over. 
they just compressed the space and Sam Merrin did that really well. But Aberdeen just took it to the next level, right? And I've sent you a couple of the screenshots and you can take a screenshot for almost any part of this game. Well, first of all, you can see that Goodwin having, okay, it's, you know, I didn't have a great game at Ibrox. But I had partly thought, maybe he's going to try and do something similar. Maybe he's going to try and attack Celtic here. But he did completely opposite. And you saw the same thing. The wingbacks went all the way and they sat on the wingers. They had to close the midfield tree. was always really close. And essentially, you had three centre-backs sitting on Kyogo. And the space between that back five and the midfield tree was so compressed. There was like just a few meters apart. So Samirin probably sat that block slightly higher. I don't think I've seen a team sit that low than Aberdeen. But the really weird thing was, because you had the two strikers, and Samirin's two strikers, they did some work. Like, they did try and like push up on the centre-backs. Like, Mivowski and, and Duke here, absolutely no intention of pressing at all. Like Duke fell down a little bit at times, but it, you can essentially walk through them, both of them. They was they were just standing in the middle, waiting for a counter. This is it was more like an eight zero two rather than you know uh, a three five two. So much. I, I, I don't have really seen anything like it. So another screenshot in the second half when because what happened a lot in the second half, not to jump, but. Jota and Abada came into the penalty box a, a, a lot more as well. So there was there's periods, there's one screenshot here where it's Celtics eight most attacking outfield players, so excluding the two centre backs, and Aberdeen's eight essentially most defensive players, excluding the strikers. They're all in the same area, and the area is from about 30 yards out to about the penalty spot. Um, and then sideways, it's about just outside the six yard box, you know, or exactly. And you got 16 outfield players within this tiny, tiny space. So, uh, what kind of this? It, so, I've, I'm almost flabbergasted that Aberdeen went that low and the, the forwards were that passive and they collapsed so much in terms of. And leaving absolutely no space between the midfield and uh, and the back line, and so some of the stats popping up from that are quite incredible. So, in terms of passes, Celtic get nine hundred three passes. That's the third highest under Ange, but it's the most passes Celtic have had in an away game under Ange Postecoglou. Away against Aberdeen and some mm. of the teams they've met, like the two games with the most passes at home, St Johnston in April. 1006 passes and then actually the nil against Livingston in October 21, 946. But then in terms of shots, 30 shots. Again, that's the third highest shot total under Ange. Again, it's the highest, most amount of shots taken by a Celtic team away in a away game under Ange. And then Celtic spent 26 seconds per every possession they had. That is the second highest in an away game under Ange. Like St. Mirren away in December 21, the nil-nil uh, is the other one. So, and, and some like St. Mirren fans, when I kind of said this on Twitter, was, was not happy with me. So that's another fan base of pissed off. Um, so in, they weren't happy of, with what? They weren't happy with being compared to 
uh, Aberdeen being compared to them because they said, oh, you know, we, we were more attacking. We did it better. And I was like, by the way, I like to got a point, especially for the front two. I can give you a hundred screenshots, but the front two, Aberdeen at least, uh, St. Mary, actually, they, were part, they actually created a defensive line. So they had three defensive lines. Aberdeen just had two. Like there, so, there was, I, I could have strolled through the front two, but but if you look at some of the stats comparing the Aberdeen game to the St. Marion game, um, you know Celtic only had seventeen shots against St. Marion at thirty now. They had seven hundred thirty-three passes, so they had less passes, and they got into St. Marion's final third eight times less. They got into St. Marion's penalty box and controlled the ball twelve times less, so third less. So anyway, I think St. Marion did this better. I think they only had three open play shots and, you know, um, Aberdeen had one open play shot, but they did in one way, Goodwin went St. Mirren, but he went St. Mirren on speed, really. <laughs> but see, what I don't get is like, <clears throat> so obviously you say he he was going to take aspects of the St. Mirren game, uh, but then he seems to have copied it completely. But one of the things you mentioned at the start of your notes is that the the way they played against Hibs and Rangers was that the front three were like, like basically on top of the, the the opposite. They were pressing really high. So why, if if we know that these two players can do that, they can press. Did they just give them a message not to press the Celtic defence? I mean, why, why take like ninety five percent of the model and then just leave that last five percent out? I mean, having said this, that the game at Ibrox was horrific. I mean, so I mean, because there's not only the front two that was pressing high; it was the attacking midfielder as well. Clarkson came up, and he he was part of a front three that was pressing. I say pressing, standing high, right? <laughs> it was it's, it's so. I often do that. <laughs> there was, you know, um, was this Aberdeen? Is is it stand free? The Aberdeen players? Uh, is that the anyway? <laughs> anyway, so there was so. Because they were pressing so high, there was so much space between the attacking line and the midfield line. And because it was the centre backs, Aberdeen centre backs, that was tasked with going out on the range of swingers, you had lots of space. You know, to, those three centre backs were so far apart. Whereas in this game, there was, I mean, you could have, you just couldn't swing a cat between them, right? Mm. And why would you swing a cat? That's just cool. And, mm. but also, so, so it's, it's completely opposite. So they didn't do that that formation or tactic against Rangers really well. They did it against Hibs as well. And obviously they did win four one at home, but it's the elements of that. So I was discussing before this game. It was kind of like, it's, surely he's not going to do goal like he did at Ibrox because I was had a preview. Like happy days if you do, because I think Celtic would absolutely crush them. But you, you do have that kind of like <laughs> that kind of question that. If you want to beat Celtic, playing like range uh, like Aberdeen did against Rangers, it's probably not the worst thing you can do, right? It's what Dundee United tried to do, and they got rolled over. So Aberdeen tried to do it against Rangers and got rolled over, but there's elements of there where if you do that in ten games, maybe you win two of them. Mm. And then we have the other side of that that some teams when they play against Celtic, they just like we're just going to minimize the defeat. And that's what I felt like. With, because I thought uh, Goodwin was going to go. Maybe he's just going to go for that because you know there's a couple of players just back from the World Cup. We've got a lot of time to prep. Okay, it didn't really work again. Rangers, but we're going to try it again. Totally, it might be a different game, and you might get something. This is it's even if 
Aberdeen would have got that at draw yesterday. It's just a, a, a really dumbfounding decision what he did. Because there was, I mean, this is Celtic play against some really bad teams and, and some teams that sit really low. None of them have done it to this degree. Like the only team that maybe comes close is Goodwin's own team in St. Mirren at that point. And you kind of go, is it? So one or two things kind of came up to my why Goodwin's doing this, or why he did. Maybe he tried to do something else and he didn't want them to be that low, sit so much behind eh, because they're not used to playing that. Otherwise, got maybe he had too much to time over the world too much time to think during the World mm. Cup and he, he overthinked us and he's like, he's, he's going to do this and I'm going to do West of Maryland. And uh, so uh, I, I think you can say, okay, it, was, it almost worked. But see that goal from, we'll come back to how Celtic kind of tried to break this down, but McGregor's goal could have come in the fourth minute and not mm. four minutes from time. There was nothing specifically. No, it might as well have come at that point. And if that is it's a completely different game. And I mean... But he manages two shots, and one of them is a free kick. And they hardly, in terms of, they got into Celtic's penalty box in control of the ball four times. They got into Celtic's final 30 to control of the ball 16 times. I mean, in that Sam Marin game, Sam Marin did that. They got into Celtic's penalty box 10 times, into Celtic's final third 39 times. I mean, it was, it's one of the weirdest tactical decisions, one of the maybe most cowardly ones. You've mm. ever seen, really. And it's, you can, Celtic always, oh, we want people to come out and play against us so we can beat them 5 0. But it's, Aberdeen could, especially those two strikes, Aberdeen could hurt the Celtic team, I think, if, if they get that tactic spot on. But this mm. is just, this is putting up a white flag. It's, it just, it's so, it must be so stark for the players to be going to the Bernabeu to play Real Madrid and then playing against that Aberdeen team. Sitting in this like shadow box. I, I mean, mean, it's just so different types of football. And, uh, see, had it been St. Marin or even, you know, Livingston or something like that, you kind of go, okay, that's just where you get this go. And you go to the, what is literally the third best team in the country right now. And as you know, Gary from the I think ABZ podcast came on the previous said, you know, this Goodwin, the board wanted someone attacking football and Goodwin says, I can deliver attacking football. He's tried to do it. And then he comes up against Celtic and he just goes ultra. Ultra defensive, and it wasn't even defense. Like it's not like they were trying to be Atletico Madrid and set and press in a four four two and then counter. Like so there's there's ways you can be compact and uh, you know hard to break down and still have a trick. You know, offensively. I mean, like, this was not this was not it. It's like playing football manager and just sliding the, the the thing all the way to the left. <laughs> just move the That's whole it. team all the way That's back. It. But so I went onto an Aberdeen forum uh, after after the game, and you love were, that. You I do love, love it. I was, a, I was actually on the West Brom forum to see what was in about oh, Tam wow. as well. Um, they love them. Um, but the Aberdeen forum, they were absolutely spewing. They they there seems to be real hate between Aberdeen fans and Jim Goodwin. And again, that I want to kind of rephrase that question. I don't know if you'll be, be you'll be able to answer. Was it a case of he went 95% some tactic and then told his two strikers just don't bother pressing? Or did the, did the players just not know how to press in that formation? I don't know because obviously like the, I guess the idea of leaving two players on top isn't it's a bad one because mm-hmm. you, you have two players on top. You have if, if the ball calls up, you have you know, it's easy to keep the ball really and, and you have the both you know, decent pace on them. So there's a logic to that. But I think 
they, they must have been told not to press at all because they just they, they, there was no defensive structure in there at all. And what because the other the midfield specifically was so low, there's quite a big distance between the two attackers in the midfield. So even if Aberdeen did break, I, you need you need one of, at least one or two things. You need another central midfielder that can quickly get up to the two strikers. Mm-hmm. And you need at least one or two of your wingbacks to be able to be an outlet straight away. And this is what they did quite well against Hibs, because if you look at this, it's like a nice replay of one of the chances against Hibs from like, like, it's quite a wide angle. So you can see like as soon as Aberdeen win the ball in the middle, like the two wingbacks are like almost higher up than the strikers and both sides. And that's, you know, that's looking at this before the game, it's like, that's something you'd have to set to look out for. Because, and that's the reason why they put the, their centre-backs out on the wingers, because that allows sometimes the wing-backs to have a high starting point or they can more easily get up. So, but because the wing-backs were so low, because the midfield tree was so low, it didn't really matter that you had two players on top because they didn't have an outlet, yeah. you know, at, at all. So, I, I don't know. If it's just, I, I can understand why they're the dealing with him because that was... An absolute, and it's, and even see if they got a draw, I think those fans would have get mm-hmm. been just as mad because that's not the way. That's that's not the way you get a draw. You know, it's, at Aberdeen, it's just oh, no. I used to think he was a good manager, and I don't I think know. It's a good, how, he might be a good summer manager. Yeah, I could bet. I mean, but, I just don't know how you can watch that St. Man game and not see the importance of Curtis Main, and I can't remember the name of the other striker. But they, their job was vitally important in that game. They were disrupting us trying to bring the ball out from the back. It, that's Those two strikers, they have a lot of talent, but I I think it's clear they fit better in an offensive team and their strengths mm-hmm. come out in a team that has possession more. And that's, I mean, okay, if you, if you had a couple of your, the big claggers that Aberdeen used to have on top, you know, McGuinness is they fair enough, you know, cause, but these strikers didn't fit at all. It was just one of the weirdest tactical decisions I've I've seen. Would you make a premiership? Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I think it's okay. I think it's decent, right? I mean, it's once. I think you you need to. That's going to take the cowards right out and say you need you need to see more of him. But you can tell once he had the ball on the ground. I mean, he get Ralston a lot of trouble. The few times he actually had the ball on the space to to run at him. So I I think he's you know. You know, Gary from that pod talked about the recruitment and they're going out and doing things differently. And you go, yeah, I think that's you know picking up somebody from Porto B. Like he's obviously talented. You know, you know a Macedonian player from the Hungarian league. You know, great. No, because these guys are obviously talented. But it's almost on that weird parallel with Hibs. Hibs, I think, has had interesting recruitment processes and targets as well. But look at it managed to go in higher, like Lee Johnson and Kitwin. Like you need to kind of, you know, you need to be able to play them in a system uh, that kind of fits them. And Goodman did did, did nothing here. And it's, it's when he's tried to go attacking like an Ibrox, I mean, it's that was almost just as bad. And I think there's there's probably a middle ground there when he he goes that way against the Hibs and most other teams in the in the Premiership because Aberdeen's got the players they have. They have good players, so overall. You know his tactics probably going to work then, but going ultra defensively against Celtic it was terrible. Going ultra offensive against Rangers, 
terrible as well. So that's not a great. It, it's weird to say, but even though he's third, I don't think he's had a very good season. <laughs> good it's, biz- it's bizarre going like ultra offensive in the away game and then going ultra defensive in the yeah. home game. It just it's, doesn't it's, seem to make sense. Um, what, this is an aside, but what, what do you make of um, Hart signing a 21 year old from Vassell Kobe? Uh, do you think it's interesting for the league to be being a bit more uh, uh, experimental? Absolutely, I, mean, I, I think that's that's what you want. I mean, it's you know it's going to make it a bit less obvious uh, in terms <laughs> of here uh, mimicking. But yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I know it's harsh to somebody who's, who's always emphasizing the, the recruitment more and more as well. I think it needs to come a point where you need have an alignment with the coaches. Maybe Robin Nielsen is that. Maybe he's, he's able to do that. But I think both at Hibs and Aberdeen so far, you're doing interesting thing recruitment-wise. I think Dundee United tried to do that as well. Um, but it hasn't kind of matched up with the, the, the whole holistic view of having, okay, they have a head coach to actually can use the best of those players and who mm-hmm. fits that. And that's um, So yeah, no, I think it's good. You know, that's I think that what Scottish football do need. They need to, you know, using the money they have as as, as, as well as they can. So I want you to stick on uh, Japanese players and the reaction was uh, quite critical of uh, Kyogo and uh, it wasn't as critical as the internet has been about <laughs> Kyogo. Uh, I shared a thing today about from this one lunatic um, basically destroying Kyogo as a Celtic player and uh, I, I, what the kind of theory I've I've been working on in my head for the, the the last day or so is about how the expectations of what Celtic fans expect from a, a striker, and we we often have this idea that Celtic striker should be scoring thirty goals a season. It's that's it, kind of minimum thirty goals a season, and I think it comes from like the four four two days where the the goals were maybe not spread out as much as they are nowadays. Uh, is is it just a difference of we need to change ex- expectations for a central striker when we are playing a system like the, the one we're playing with the 4-3-3, four, four, we're getting goals from Jota, we're getting goals from Haksibanovic, getting goals from Abada, uh, Gigi. And also we, are, we have the fact that we are basically giving like maybe not 50-50 game time, but we're given like 60-40 game time between two players in that central position. Is, does the expectation of the number need to come down from Celtic fans in this system with uh, the central striker? Um, I don't know, to be honest, because I think both Kyogo and Gigi, relative to how much time they're on the pitch, the goal ratio is really good. Like, uh, Kyogo overall, you know, his time at Celtic, per every 90 minutes he played, all competition, he's got 0.78 goals per 90 minutes. So, you know, if, if you give him, say, 40 full 90 minutes over a season, that's 32 goals at that rate. You yeah. know, Gigi, I think is, I think it's, uh, I can double check his number. I think it's roughly the same. Like so, if, if if you play them that amount, they will get lots of goals. So, I I, I know what you mean. I, I, I haven't actually done the, the stats on that, but you have a lot of players in that team that score. Something score a lot of goals. I mean, they scored two hundred on their hands with those two strikers playing almost every 
<laughs> every game. So it's not, you know, I don't think that's the issue. I mean, I think with Kyogo, and I don't know how long after I can, it's very predictable of me of banging this drum, but Kyogo, you know, I guess he's got this saying now, he's, he's not clinical enough. I'd be honest, it's, he, I mean, he is as clinical as you would expect him to be. You know, it's the old thing. Kyogo is very much bang on his XG. In the last season, overall, he had 20 goals on 17.2 XG. So he was, he was a little above it. But this isn't so far all competition from Instat. He's got 11 goals at 12.3 XG. So it's, it's like slightly below. But if you put that together, he's got 31 goals for Celtic so far at 29.5 XG. And at that kind of sample, maybe even sometimes when you need bigger samples, is that's what you expect, you know, it's from, from any striker, you know, or not any striker, but that's, you know, the one thing I try to bang on about all the, all the time is that the really good top strikers, they're not outperforming their XG much. They're not quote unquote super clinical. They're the best strikers to score the most goals because they get to the most chances, i.e. XG. It's the same with Kyogo. It's the same with Gigi. I think the tweet you said, like, oh, Kyogo's got five goals since, four goals since August. I mean, he's got five. But if, if you look at Kyogo and Gigi, like, since August, so I guess since <laughs> September onwards, Kyogo's got 990 minutes. He's got five goals at 8.2 XG. So just now he's he's in a patch where his XG is technically, you know, Kotoko should have had three more. GG is the same, 834 minutes, five goals, eight XG. In July and August, Kyogo has 361 minutes, six goals and four XG. GG actually had 196 minutes, three goals and 3.8 XG. So there will be patches in, in these kind of big samples. So the general rule is that big enough sample goals and XG will match up. But obviously that doesesn't follow the same that you know the XG and G goals are always the same. You know, sometimes XG will be higher than the goals, sometimes the goals will be higher than the XG. Look at look at Kolak at the start of the season in terms of I mean first of all, Kyogo's got more goals in the league this season per 90 than, than, than Kolak has, right? Kyogo's got 1.02 goals in the league per 90. He's I'll, I'll say that again. Kyogo's got more than one goal per every 90 minutes he's played in the league this season. Mm -hmm. Gigi's got 0.8. Abada's got 0.9. Right? Kolek's got 0.9 as well. What, what happens in terms of this is obviously what kind of what determines the narrative and narrative is, is a really powerful thing. It's spun on when you have those hot streaks and when you have those cold streaks. Where and when those goals came. And unfortunately for Kyogo this season, some of his kind of, he hasn't got that goal in the Champions League. And I think yesterday, obviously, he has a big miss. Um, but that doesn't mean, quote unquote, he hasn't been very clinical this season. Because two things to that, one, he's, he's pretty much all next year. And two, that a striker being clinical, in a way, doesn't really exist in the way a lot of people think it exists. You don't really have strikers who outperform the XG on and on and on again and over a season. 
I mean, it's, God, it's always like a couple of outliners to that. But as a general rule, it, it's as, as it's a good a rule as you can get. But because Kyoga hasn't done it in Champions League, and it's, you know, there's things that then come into the, you can speculate on in Champions League. Is it's just, it's the level a bit, you know, too high. It's just it snatched a bit more into Champions League. What leads to that quote unquote cold phase in, in the Champions League? And you go, you know, we had a good look at it. And I think none of the chances in Champions League are huge. I think he does well in the Champions League. There might be some elements of that, but overall, most of the time, it's just randomness. That's what happens. But that's how your status as a striker, a lot of your career trajectory is often based on hitting the right patch at the right time. And there's luck mm. of that. It's just, just luck. So, okay. You see, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm very happy I don't do reactions because I don't, I think everybody should get a mulligan on what is, you know, <laughs> I would not want to do a reaction. And um, every, but. I, I think this idea that you can just go and buy a more clinical striker than Kyogo and then they'll easily score goals in Champions League. I don't think that exists. I just, uh, I, I just don't think because you can have, because there isn't as such a thing as a super clinical striker that's super clinical all the time. So because uh, if, if the, what makes a good striker good, they get to lots of XG and, and they to... make their, and, and, sorry, and, and they make their team actually win and the team perform and the team score goals as well. I think I'm thinking of players like Lewandowski who consistently outperform XG, and one. T- so this is going to sound like a bit of a stupid mm, question. Consistently, is, that's a big word. But. <laughs> and it's it's to do with XG and people's perception of the chance. So we we know that a penalty kick is what zero point seven five. Yeah, about. So you can have a. a, a a footballer can have a chance from 12 yards with no one in front of him apart from the goalkeeper and it's still not expected to be a goal. Uh, well, not expected to be a win uh, for XG. When it comes to a player like Kyogo, Kyogo could have a 0.6 XG chance and miss it quite easily. But for a lot of people, that 0.6 XG chance would look like a massive, a massive chance, a massive sitter. So whereas him not scoring it would not be like affecting his matching up of sco- goals to XG if, for example, he misses, maybe maybe scores one and misses a few of those chances. The perception to people would be he is consistently missing good chances and that would not be fully represented when you do this balance between the goals and the expected goals. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's perception that Kyogo misses a lot of big chances, but I, I think it, uh, I come back to it. I mean, his, his XG matches his goals. Now, that that might happen in, in in different ways. I think it, it's interesting to look at, okay, does he miss more in, in that kind of bracket than other strikers? But I think, again, you get into issues like sample size and stuff like that, and I don't, I don't know if it's actually the case. And But uh, it, it is one of the, the hardest kind of, I guess, things to convince people of that this is actually a, a thing, you know. Um, but I think it comes back to that. I think that you remember misses like yesterday, and, and you remember him not scoring the Champions League. Now, a couple of in terms of, you know, where um, it's it's like his, his big chance yesterday uh, in terms of how how big it was, and and so on. Um, 
Let me double check here. I have that. So it's about zero point. Insta has that zero point five one, and I think Xstatsbox is at zero point four four. So that's a chance that is expected to be scored half the time. And you look at that chance, and you, you go, surely no. But it is, you know, an XG chance that is scored half the time is a huge chance because that means you expect to score it every other time. That means it's a huge, huge chance. And it's, see, it's, I think that's where the problem comes in perception. Because if you say to any Celtic fan on the street, show them that chance and say eh, that that chance happened over two in two different games, and Kyogo scored one mm-hmm. goal from it, they would say Kyogo's not going to go enough. Yeah. Like the, I, I know, <laughs> and but but it is what it is, and it's and but because it's nil nil because it's you know Celtic almost didn't win the game because he's you know he hasn't scored in Champions League so that that kind of elevates that, and then that makes people more frustrated about it. But it comes back to the fact that it's you know in that moment it's, it's probably the best extra moment. It's got a zero point four four chance of scoring. You know, it's less than See, half the chance, but it is again, so. I, I'm just trying to get to this kind of uh, understanding from from punters, basically. So, for example, just say he gets two of those chances, he scores one of them. Everyone's going to remember the time that he missed it. And then they'll say to you, Kyogo's not clinical enough, and you'll say, but he has one goal and he has an ex- expected goal of one. So he is clinical. But people will be like, but he missed a massive sitter. Do you, do you do you can I understand what I'm getting at? Yes, but also it doesn't change the fact that you know it, it is one of the most difficult things to get people to. I guess accept. They don't have to accept it if you if, if, it must if, 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 if you don't want to. I mean, I'm I'm looking sitting now looking at you know the stats bomb whatever, and I said specifically in 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 the league they have Kyogo at eight point three four xg. And they have another ten goals, right, in the league. So again, if you look at it purely from from a league perspective, he is being quote unquote more clinical than the average, you know. And so, it's, so it is one of the most difficult things to get. I guess advanced stats. It's one of the most clear evidence we have in terms of advanced stats is that what makes a really good striker is that they get to a lot of chances and. Roughly, they scored to how many chances they get, right? And I think in a team like Celtic, you are going to get to a lot of chances. So, but what I'm saying is that the narrative around that is so much influenced about when those hot and cold patches comes, and when and and whole careers can be built on that. And you get last season, you get Kyogo gets the two goals in the League Cup final. He gets the goal, you know, you know, in the Europa League. And there's, there's, you know, he's got lots of misses last season as well. But overall, he's, he's, it's just when they come. And that's, that's what happens with strikers. We talk about wingers being on and off and blowing hot and cold. It's, it's even more for strikers. I mean, they don't, you know, even the really, a really high shot volume for a striker per game on average is like three. You know, that, that's, that's a high shot volume for, for, for a striker. You know, you got someone who's more than that, but if you get three shots a game, that's, that's a lot. That's just three chances in 90 minutes. You know what I mean? So, and it's it, 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 essentially you can go. And I'm not saying you can't go and get a better striker than Kyogo Furuhashi. What I'm saying is, I don't think if people say we need to get a more clinical striker who scores goals, I mean everybody wants that. But 
they don't exist really in that sense. You can get a better striker that will get to lose more XG and score maybe more goals. Yeah, you can. It makes the system work better. Yeah, you can. But that kind of mythical, oh, let's go a clinical striker who who will he'll convert those chances. It just doesn't work like that. This goals are too random to to work like that. Essentially. I think it's the the reality versus the perception. Like the reality is that that goal gets scored forty four percent of the time. The perception is that that goal gets scored ninety five percent of the time. And I think, yeah, and I think that's where people. That's probably where people really struggle with the stats and and football because it just doesn't feel right to them. They're they're making judgments based on their feelings. Um, yeah, so we're. <laughs> that makes me sound like a robot, but yeah, and, and again, it is after games, during games. I think that's fine, but I, this is like if, if there's one thing we know from the stats, it is that XG and goals will pretty much always align. And best strikers has the most XG. They don't have, they don't score loads of more goals than their XG. It's, mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. So we've got 20 minutes left. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where you want to touch on uh, before we move on to a quick chat about the World Cup. You want me to sum up the rest of my own else in five minutes? Okay, I think this is a couple of times. We talked about Celtic's performance. I think Celtic's performance is good. I think, you know, stats-wise, it's one thing, you know, 3XG, how do you concede any? What they tried to do, I think the Samaritan game is a good comparison. I think, obviously, you got a better midfield, first of all. Like, that's a good midfield you have there uh, compared to the Samaritan one. But what, what Celtic were effective at is that because the wing-backs were sitting so low, because the centre-backs were all around Kyogo, that's another thing with Kyogo yesterday. I thought he was pretty involved in the game, but he also had about three centre-backs on him the whole time. What Celtic did well is that they moved their fullbacks in centrally to create like a three versus four overload a lot of the time. So be it Ralston or most more, you know, more often Greg Taylor would come in and you'd have Aberdeen's midfield tree sitting in front of their centre backs. Maybe one, pretty much one again, one against McGregor, Hatata, and O'Reilly. He just moved Greg Taylor in. He was in so much space so many other times. I've shown you a couple of clips, I sent you a video. He was on the ball so much. Stephen Russell put a tweet out yesterday, like when he was on pass map, and that that kind of half space, you know, that space between the six yard box and the eighteen yard uh, six yard box out to the eighteen yard line, um, vertically in the final third for Aberdeen. It's not a big space. It's usually quite a coveted space. Greg Taylor receives the ball, receives the ball in that space forty seven times. Like it's it's just an incredible amount, and I think what Greg Taylor did well is that he moves the ball really fast and precisely. He makes the right decision, and a few times he managed to tread that ball into that tiny space between the midfield and defence. He found Hatati a couple of times. He found Matt O'Reilly a couple of times. But the space is so compressed that like a slightly bad touch when that comes in. Aberdeen just got a player really close to us. I think that happens a couple of times with Matt O'Reilly as well. But I think Celtic, they kept going, right? Another point we had was that, um, you know, those overloads, they're treading balls between the lines, they're trying to do it. They have 55 passes into the penalty box. And you feel, it's going to be a lot of crosses there. And there was, there was quite a lot of crosses yesterday, but I sent you the pass map in terms of where Celtic got the ball into the penalty box. 
and there's quite a few crosses from the right hand side but on the left there's there's not much at all there's it is from that greg taylor half space it is from slightly further up centrally and on the right hand side with one with mcgregor and atati so they try to work the ball into the box from every conceivable angle. I thought that was, I thought they did well. And I think even if that's a draw, there's a bit more of an inquisition today. But I don't think it alters the performance. I think with the ways Aberdeen set up with how defensive they are, there's only so much you can do. I think Celtic tried to do pretty much what they could. And I think overall they did really well. There's a few things I can kind of pick up on that I think wasn't, it could have been done better. I think the XG per shot, 0.10, which is the lowest in the league this season. The second lowest was actually in the previous game against Ross County. So obviously there was a lot of shots from distance. Uh, I think this is the seventh lowest XG per um, shot in the league on the ranch so far. And I think Callum McGregor is a good example of that in terms of there was not all long shots are created equal. Right, so you have to take into consideration what's the and when I say, say a long shot. I say you know outside the box. Take into consideration that the distance, the angle, the pressure that's on you in terms of you know is the players around, is the players close to you, and what kind of pass options you have. So I thought Cal McGregor's shot for the goal is is perfect. It's like a really nice angle, a bit on the side. He's not pressured. We'll get back to why. And I think his, his other shots, another shot from outside the box in the second, first half, again, he makes the right choice at that point. But he's got two, one attempt in the first half, one attempt in the second half, where oh, it's just a poor decision to take a shot there. Cal McGregor's got a tendency to do that. I think there was other players yesterday, Matt O'Reilly does it, Anthony Rylson tries from his left foot outside the box. So you, you, that's the reason why you get a low XG per shot, I think. Um, other things, I think... Uh, you know, again, Aberdeen was really, it wasn't often the Aberdeen team was high up on the pitch. It's a couple of times when Celtic had to go all the way back to Joe Hart and he had a little bit of pressure. And what annoyed me then was just Joe Hart went long when he didn't really have to. He'd panic a bit and it went long. That's like, mate, there's like three, four chances in that game where Celtic, Aberdeen players are spread all across the pitch. At that point, you need to play a short ball to your centre-back, even though he's under a little bit of pressure, and then get the ball up again. So I think it's a couple of times like that. Um, other th- I'm really rattling through this. I want to get to uh, Cal McGregor's stat. Cal McGregor's passes, 183 passes attempted. He completed 172. He completed, I put on Twitter, I think 38 more open play passes than Aberdeen. But I tried to figure out who's... What player has taken the most passes in any game? And I, I, I found a Guardian article from 2019, but in that, in terms of the Champions League, the top five leagues since 2006, 2007, until 2019. We made the list. Julian Vigel, Brazilian Dortmund, <laughs> completely 199 passes in a Bundesliga game in 2016. Joaquinho had 192 for Napoli once. Xavi had 178 for Barcelona versus Celtic in the Champions League. And Busquets had 173 for Barcelona as well. McGregor, that's just based on that, completed fifth highest compared to everybody on that all-time list. I mean, he's he's attempted 183, which I think is like the third highest. It's like, uh, uh, you know, since 
going back to the start of 2016-17 season, we have the stats on the instat. Talon Rodriguez's most passes before this game was 129 versus Reykjavik in August 2020. He had 183, that's 54 passes more, 30% more. So it's an insane amount. And it just tells you about how low and compact uh, Breen was. Deep breath, Graham. The last thing I want to say, it's on brand, but Greg Taylor. Go and look at Greg Taylor's run before the goal because he makes that run into the house space between the wing back and the center back. He pulls at least two Aberdeen players away and that gives James Forrest comes in. Cal McGregor has that space. He has a few yards. They had a good angle right on the edge of the box to fire that in. Comes from Greg Taylor's run. 10 minutes before, he does the exact same thing. Exact same run, creates the exact same space. James Forrest comes in. It doesn't end up in a shotgun. But that's what you get. That's We don't stop. He makes that run at the 77th minute. Doesn't happen. He makes the run again, 86th minute. Creates the opening, creates the shot. There you go. I mean, My boy. player of the air. So yeah, that was so that was, that was I have a Greg Taylor uh, related question for you. But just before I'm looking at okay. those completed passes, uh, every one of them is like big team versus small team. So Napoli, Verona, for example, uh, yeah. Barcelona, Levante, PSG, Bastia. But then Gundogan with 167 passes versus Chelsea. <laughs> so it was just basically walk, waltzing about the pitch with his slippers on against Chelsea. I like to see. Yeah. It. I love that. Yeah. So Greg Taylor. Yeah. So Greg Taylor. Um I think there's the feeling that he is an excellent angeball left back. And we also probably have the perception that when he had to do the kind of normal fullback stuff under Lennon, he was kind of found wanting. Is it a case of he is more valuable to us than he would be on the open market? Because not many teams play that kind of uh, inverted fullback. I know more teams are, are, are starting to. Or is it a case of he is now just a much better footballer and if we were to revert back to playing a normal fullback system, we would still see a very effective Greg Taylor? I, I think you see a better Greg Taylor in a quote-unquote normal fullback system. And what we mean by that, I guess, is somebody who stays wide, who needs to get past a man, who needs to whip in across. It's good one against one, essentially, and he has that speed. I don't. Greg Taylor could be really valuable on the transfer market if you need somebody to do that role. More and more teams are doing that. You know, uh, Arsenal is one, uh, and so on. And I think he's he's still young, even even for a fullback. Um, but he wouldn't be that much worth on the market if you just need a traditional left back. Like, mm. I, I, I don't. So it depends on the club. So you know, I think he's is in this perfect system. You know, he's a player who I think can perform in the Champions League at a left back role because of what is asked of him. If you ask him to do something different in the Champions League, I don't think he would. You know, more traditionally, I don't think he he wouldn't be able to do that as well. Um, but you know, in the right team, I know it's it's, it's just going from strength to strength. It's, it's because there's a lot to do about your decision making. And your your intelligence, I guess, and then you know, knowing when simply when to run, how to create that space, and but it's, I think his passing is, is the one thing. You know, he's, he's also has a decent foot, but they're able to 
to be precise and, and thread that ball. I think that's where it's coming from. And there's all, there'll always be an element of that um, to it, but it's just a perfect system for him. Absolutely. So what you're saying is we go to Arsenal and we see him Tierney plus 40 million and you can have Greg Taylor? No, I would say no to that. I want okay. Greg Taylor. So. Yeah, he'll do here yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. So the World Cup has finally concluded, thank God. Um, <laughs> we're not going to spend too much time on it because Gal will kick us in the balls <laughs> if we go for 90. But from the last time we spoke, there's been the semi-finals, there's been the third-place playoff, and there has been the final, of course. So in the semi-final, I think one of the biggest surprises was just how handedly Argentina dealt with Croatia. What, did you expect that? I mean, like, we kind of swatted them aside a little bit. I guess the thing with Croatia is that in in this World Cup and the last, I think it's four of the five knockout wins have come on penalties. So there was maybe a point where <laughs> and you know, Brazil was it was maybe like one too many for them, and they had kind of been you know been kind of riding that not not luck because they've done well, but it's uh, it, it was weird. I, but I was more confident about Argentina against. Croatia than I was against the Netherlands, to be honest. Because um, it almost surprised me how, how well Argentina against against the Netherlands except the last fifteen minutes. So, but I think it was it was really convincing, and I think that kind of go okay. Even if they do come up against France, or they can, they'll give them a match, and, and, and they'll be in it. But even before the game yesterday, I was like, I had France as favourites, and I did not expect. Argentina to be that dominant that they were. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely exhausted after that final. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I don't even know what to say. I, I come, haven't even really kind of been able to put it into words. But it was just, I was, it was just great. You know, it, it was really just great that the whole thing, that game happening in Messi's kind of last chance and. The back and forth of it, and how good Argentina was, and then I was absolutely sure France was going to win. Even even though two one, I was like, they're not going to hold on to this, and no way they're going to hold on to this. But I mean, somehow they did, and I, it's we talked a lot. I think you, just, you know you should always have a sense of slight discomfort watching this World Cup, which I think you know we talked about before, and I think that's fine to have it. That's right to have it, but. It's one of the all-time best games of football you'll ever see at that stage of that narrative. And it's that, you know, talk about narrative, talks about creating moments, creating icons, and that, just, that game just had everything. And you had a special moment watching it with your son. How, how was that? Yeah, it was just, I, I was six when I watched Argentina and uh, West Germany in, you know, Mexico 86 World Cup. Um, I, I clearly remember my mum threatening uh, me to go to bed uh, if it went to extra time. Um, so luckily it didn't. So yeah, and then Max is the same age now as well. And he's like, he, I think he's getting a point where he's so emotionally invested in football that he's, when France made it 2-2, he's, he couldn't watch. He had to go out and he's, because he had like that emotional reaction when Brazil lost in the quarterfinals that he hadn't mm. had before. And then he, he just had to go out of the room and he's like, oh, no, you couldn't do it. And it's, 
he came back in for less, you know, extra time in the penalties and stuff like that. I'm just glad he could have that that win. Because you know what football's like, that it'll crush you out and disappoint you. So I think it's good at a young age you actually get a big win like that as well. And he was absolutely beaming about it. So, you know, so, so that was great. And your Liverpool team has been linked with uh, Fernandes. What, what do you, are you excited about that? Yeah, just everyone who's done well to World Cup, really. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it was we had Joe one last week, and you know, it's been interesting to see what Liverpool's recruitment because there's a lot of chat about you know this best in class model, and it's you know a lot of key people are leaving. You know, Klopp's going to have a bit more uh, you know um, input into this. Um, I would like players to have a very good base outside the World Cup because again. You shouldn't really judge too much about the World Cup. I mean, I've been very excited about the Celtic players, and, you know, and the Tunisian Ludani, especially that's been good at work and linked to Celtic. Mm. But yeah, you need to take it with a pinch of salt. But yeah, it's, you need something in that midfield because that label midfield is starting to creak a bit, quite a bit. So remember, it was uh, Oleg Solenko had he was finished top goal scorer oh, and five goals in it? one game. Yeah, yeah, 94. and and then Rangers bought him, and he was an absolute dumb one. So, so uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to see. Uh, Celtics never not bought anybody from the World Cup this one, though. So it's good. Do you? Do you? I, I kind of get the impression that the whole off the field stuff was once people started to get excited about the games, it just got totally put in the back burner. And uh, I was a bit disappointed. There just wasn't any real protest from players or any like t-shirts under shirts or anything like that. I mean, it just felt to me as if. In the end, the whole protest became a bit of a token at the beginning that was not really kind of um, thought about afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's disappointing. It's expected, you know. It, 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 I think players, I, mean, I think we called out the players who, who's done less than the bare minimum. Hugo Lloris and delighted that Lloris lost because of what he said, essentially, um, because of that. I think with the Argentina team, Messi, Messi's just a blank slate, really, when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, at least he isn't offensive or uh, a horrible person in any way that uh, some other people are. Um, Can you remind me of the Michael Jordan thing about uh, Republicans buy sneakers as well? <laughs> I, I think that's a very good comparison. I, I think he is very much in that mold. And at least, you know, it's... It'd be interesting if, if it's someone specifically Argentina that kicked off, for example, that what kind of Role he would he would play in that, um, but yeah, I think Michael Jordan is not a bad comparison. Um, but it's it's, and no, I think you're right. I mean, at least you've had. I mean, sports washing do work, and you see that this is why they do it. I think overall, Qatar's had been put through the ringer a lot. I think a lot of journalists has has done quite well, but the, I think. Places like Qatar still takes that because of what they get. I mean, there's talk about them going for the Olympics now, and I don't think they would have gone for Olympics if they had been completely put off by that. So sports washing, they do these things because it works. Essentially, mm-hmm. it has worked. And and you go, so you should watch with this discomfort. But I guess the players in this is like, you know, as we say, they're not tourists. They go there to play, and I would have liked someone to do more. And I think the ones who did a little bit, all the credit to them, the ones who comes out of it, I won't forget. 
like Hugo Lloris, first of all, the Welsh coach, uh, and stuff, Arsene Wenger and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's. What did you make of the Qatari item of clothing being put on Messi? Yeah, it's the one thing you kind of you just you don't want to kind of disrespect that as as well, and because I think that's part of the criticism. Like a lot of people saying, "Oh, Qatar is going to get a strong criticism because they're an Arabic nation and a Muslim nation." I mean, at one point, you can't look away from that. There's an element of that. Another element is that you know it doesn't matter your religion. It's no excuse in terms of human rights. It's not an excuse. For for Qatar, there's no excuse for anything uh, in terms of the, especially the treatment of women and, and and the way they view homosexuality. So there's absolutely no excuse for that. But yeah, it, it kind of just at that point I went, that's why they have the World Cup, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. to 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 put a symbol of your or your nation. I, I just imagine, you know, I've, it, I've, maybe I'm being just like to put an national I guess an item of clothing on your nation on the on the on the player who's lifting the World Cup trophy. I mean did you do you put a kilt on if you win the World Cup in, in the Scotland, you know? Yeah. See you so, Jimmy Hat. Yeah, right. Uh, so it's uh, you kinda go mm, I see you know. what made me think of it as like disingenuous is be- is that if it had been a real thing that they wanted to do, give it to everyone in the team. Yeah, and like maybe do it afterwards where there's going to be a photo shoot or something like that. Yeah, but to give it to Messi, one player, when he's just the whistle has just gone and he's gonna he's gonna lift this trophy. It's just it, they wanted that image. They wanted an image of Messi with a trophy and that item of clothing, and that's what they got. So exactly. Well, it's been but another enthralling conversation, like, Christian. I, well, thank you. I hope other people think so uh, as well. But just, I mean, Toronto, I mean, the Ronaldo versus Messi thing has been the most boring conversation in football. But I can't lie, I am delighted that one side has absolutely won it now. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's just a weird thing with me feeling yesterday as well. I was like, I've always said Messi is the best player ever. I don't know if he's the greatest. And it shouldn't have taken a World Cup win to, to do that. But I think that's, that is why this about being the greatest is having a a huge game, a huge moment in the biggest game, and he's had that. And I think, I think he's the greatest. You know, there you go. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And Michael Jordan, <laughs> of football. So. Exactly. exactly. So I've been your host, uh, Graham McKay, and I will see you, Christian, and the lovely listeners in 2023. Have, have, to our review listeners, have a very merry Christmas and a happy New Year. You probably hear me before that but then you hear me on every other pod so sorry about that but yeah have a great holiday we will catch you down the road review